You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Nineteen forty-three. They toughened us for war. In the high school auditorium, Ed Monahan knocked out Dominic Esposito in the first round of the heavyweight finals. And ten months later, Dom died in the third wave at Tarua. Every morning of the war, our Brock Hall dairy delivered milk from horse-drawn wagons to wooden back porches in Southern California. In winter, frozen cream lifted the cardboard lids of glass bottles, grade A or grade B, while Marines bled to death in the surf, or the right engine faltered into channeled silt, or troops marched. What could we do with frostbitten feet as white as milk? Poet Donald Hall's writing career spans over 60 years. He was first published at age 16 when he also attended the prestigious Breadloaf Writers Conference. He is author and editor of more than 100 books, including essays, anthologies, and children's literature, as well as some 20 books of poetry, most recently White Apples and the Taste of Stone, from which the poem he just read, 1943, comes. From 2006 to 2007, he served as the United States Poet Laureate. Donald Hall has been awarded honors certainly too numerous to mention all of, but that include two Guggenheim Fellowships and the Poetry Society of America's Robert Frost Silver Medal. Hall knew personally the namesake of that medal, and his work has been compared to Frost's as well for its straightforward language and rural landscape. For the last two-plus decades, he's made his home in New Hampshire on the same farm his family has owned for close to 150 years. Yes. Hmm. Donald Hall, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for talking with me. Um, a lot of numbers, I'm realizing, in that yeah, introduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, at... It's been 80 years of life and um, almost 80 years of writing, and really. Yeah. Wow. Um, does any of that history feel weighty to you? That's a big cloak. It doesn't really seem uh, weighty to me. Uh, I've written about it so much, and... Uh, Therefore, made it public, uh, mm. and mm. I can I can take it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, then we can too. Um, I'm wondering, do you ever get surprised rediscovering poems of yours? I mean, sixty plus years and and all yeah. of this work, yeah. and you go, oh, look at that! I forgot about that one, or oh, that one's good. Actually, 1943 was one that uh, I didn't uh, write it so long ago, not so long as many of my poems. But I had uh, not thought of it, uh, and nor read it aloud uh, during the laureate year or whatever. And actually, my friend uh, Linda stumbled on it one time, and I decided I liked it. And I've been reading it uh, all the last year or so. It's a startling poem. It's lovely. Um, and I, I actually had a great uncle named Dominic Esposito. I did you really? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You were just correcting, correcting me in the titles of your poems. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, just... The, the smallest um, of words that, you know, you, you remember uh, perfectly. I, I'm very slow to uh, write and finish a poem. I just uh, 
finished one that's going to be published soon, which is uh, 81 lines, pretty long. But I had been writing it for uh, a year and a half, and I had counted up to 158 drafts of that thing. And by the time I finish it, I'm apt to uh, remember a lot about it, you know. Some, as you said before, some of them disappear. I, I forget them for a while. But, uh, oh, plurals and articles and commas and so on are things I uh, work over when I'm writing them. Everyone is important, yeah. Every, everything is important to yeah. me. And then, of course, sometimes po poems fade out of memory, and they should. I, I thought they were good one time, <laughs> but I learned later they're not. And how do you how do you learn that? Do you do you read it then as you're further along in the craft and go, oh, that I wouldn't do well, that now. I'm really talking about yeah about uh, post publication. I published my first book when I was uh, 27, back in um, 1955, and when I came in 2006 to uh, publish a selected poems uh, covering. Uh, 60 years with one poem from 1946. I left out, um, well, maybe five, six of the poem in that the poems in that first book. Uh, I, it had been, it had done well when it came out and so on. But really, uh, for me, it was exercises in an old way that I was uh, reaching out for and accomplishing but not doing anything that was new or startling in most of the poems. Mm -hmm. And I see errors in them. I see dead metaphors or cliches mm. or uh, bad moments of sound or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to look at them again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, tell me, you know, I, I understand you are a master of revision. And, and um, as you just mentioned, 158 drafts. Yeah. Or When you're holding on to that poem for a couple months, a couple years, before you're offering it up uh, to anyone else, even for critique, mm -hmm. what are you doing with it? Are you, are you reading it aloud? Are you looking for the perfect ending? Are you, wh what's happening? What is your revision process? It's all of the above. But uh, one thing that I, I do is I have an assistant who types up for me, and early in the morning, generally, I work over the poems, freshly typed, and I read along fairly quickly, and then kaboom, something strikes me as in need of repair. I may uh, find that uh, I need to change the way the line breaks, or I may discover that there's an opportunity for uh, a, a repetition of a long vowel that I hadn't noticed before, mm. or that something is better with a comma or without a comma. There are many cases of optional commas, perhaps particularly in poetry, where you expect a little pause at the end of every line. And whatever it happens, I, I mark up my, ma my manuscript, and if I have simply cut something out, of course I've given myself an opportunity to f fill it up. And I think, so, sort of, after I had done my daily work and got it ready for retyping, I'm still working on the poems. They're going on in my head. I will be driving to the store or walking up and down my house, and suddenly a new, a change in a poem floats into my head. And the next day, when I get it back, I try it out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I try out a lot that I come back to the next day and decide, no, that's not it. I have to go back to it. And uh, I think you spoke of me as a master of re revision. 
I could say I'm a victim of it, but <laughs> that's really not true either. I, I adore the stage of a poem, not the beginning. I, uh, the, the first draft is always sloppy. I'm writing, writing fast, trying to catch up with where I'm going, and uh, maybe the fifth draft is still lousy. But it is wonderful to scratch away every day on poems. And I, I, loved, I loved the act of uh, searching for language, and also of uh, being critical of language. You have to be sort of bipolar writing, <laughs> you know? You have to uh, look negatively, look for trouble uh, over the time, but also there is the thrill and the rush of um, finding what seems to be a solution, mm. something that makes it better. Well, you know, many people are fond of asking poets about um, if they think of an audience while they're writing. I would actually like to ask you about the real audience uh, that you're going to address. In a few hours, you're going mm -hmm. to be reading to a paying crowd at Monterey Peninsula College. What have you learned about your audiences over the years, the ones who are, are, are there listening yeah, to you? Yeah, I, Well, one minor thing I do is maybe read uh, some new poems, trying to f making them public. And I can sort of read a response of people's faces. Sometimes people make noises. Uh, it's a way of testing it out. And perhaps the most important thing is simply that I am addressing an audience and saying a poem. And that often, you know, reveals problems with the poem to me. But uh, in general, I love to, uh, to read. Uh, if anything, I don't write the poems to a particular audience, but I... Maybe I write them in order to read them loud. Mm -hmm. When I was beginning to be a poet well, back in the 40s and 50s, uh, there were virtually no, no poetry readings. Maybe that's one of the problems with my first book. Uh, I uh, began to do a lot of them, as everybody did, beginning in the late 50s mm -hmm. and so on. And uh, I began to pay more attention to sound, really. Mm -hmm. I remember one day uh, revising a poem and changing a, a word or something, and thinking to myself, well, that's not, not the right word, but I can make it sound like the right word. Huh. And then I thought, watch out. <laughs> this is a, one of the dangers yes. of the poetry. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, but uh, I'm, when I publish a new book, I'm delighted to have such a thing in my hand, and it's very exciting for a few days. <coughs> but uh, the, the uh, greatest pleasure I have in an audience is not publishing the book, but is saying the poems aloud. Mm -hmm. I vary what I read quite a bit. Yeah. And some poems that I like of my own do not read aloud very well. Mm -hmm. and that's a drawback, but uh, I still can like some that don't. Mm -hmm. But there are others that read particularly well that I tend to repeat, mm -hmm. and the audience mm -hmm. uh, response is almost always there. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Anything you're particularly proud of in your time as Poet Laureate? Not really, not really. I was uh, not in the best uh, physical or mental shape at that time, which I think had nothing to do with being Poet Laureate. I enjoyed reading my poems aloud, and I had lots of opportunities. Mm. But uh, I did not uh, add much of anything to what was required of the Poet Laureate. There were a couple of stabs at it, but they didn't work out. Many poet laureates have really been able to contribute something to the uh, public face of poetry. Mm. Any I, examples that come to mind? 
Well, Robert Haas, Robert Pinsky, very much. Um, uh, this has nothing to do with the quality of their poetry, which I happen to enjoy, but uh, with their activity. Oh, uh, Pensky was on the News Hour a great deal. Pensky also had a project of people reading aloud their favorite poems, and he picked and chose among them and uh, uh-huh. published anthologies. I can't remember particularly what Robert Hass did, but I know he, he did many things. He had it's a column, quite a few didn't years he? Ago. He had, oh, a, definitely. Yeah. He had a column. I think he was the first to have a column that's in the Washington Post regularly and often reprinted and often made into a uh, an anthology or a collection. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly one of the things he did. You're right. Yeah. Well, we mentioned briefly um, your home uh, on your family's farm in yeah. New Hampshire, Eagle Pond Farm. Right, right. My great-grandfather called it that. Um, my grandparents never referred to it that way, but when I moved into the house, I found a piece of stationery, probably from the late 1890s, which called it uh, Eagle Pond Farm, and so I picked it up. Uh-huh. People tend not to think that uh, you know, 24 U.S. 4 would be sufficient address, <laughs> so it's nice to have a name of it. Uh, uh, well, it's it's certainly prominent um, in in your work in many ways, yeah. and and in your life, it's 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 a it's a big piece of of what you do. Absolutely. Um, I've I read that your grandfather uh, recited poems aloud while mil- milking the Holsteins. Oh, Is that right, correct? Right. Yes, and I have that in poems and a newish poem, and I'll read tonight. He read poems aloud uh, that he had learned to speak as pieces when he was a kid. In school and also at the gatherings of young people, without radio, without television. Uh, some people played a piano, other people would speak pieces. And he must have remembered 150, 200. Uh, the literary quality was probably, probably the best was Casey at the Bat. Uh-huh. Uh, they weren't really literary poems, they were funny and they, they were okay. fun and they may have a bit of a moral lesson or uh, a, a something finally to laugh at and so on. And I loved it. I uh-huh. adored it, his uh, performing for me. I never wrote anything remotely like the poems that he uh, said to me. But it was certainly, you know, it, uh, it had certainly the effect of language used. And my, rather, my mother read poems aloud to me, uh, often uh, better children's poems. And he said it a lot, and I adored him. And all of it perhaps added up. I used to think of it, I guess I still do, as the poetry farm. But when I was, Hmm. you know, 13 or 14 years old, uh, when I wasn't haying with him, I'd actually be in my bedroom where I had a table working away on poems. Then moving back, I, I thought that my grandmother would die. And I swore I would never look at it again. I would never Uh drive by it. Uh, She lived until 97, and so the house remained in the family. And just at that moment, I had done a uh, a textbook, which did quite well. And my wife, Jane Kenyon, had visited the farm and just adored it. She was from Michigan herself, but she loved the uh, isolation in the country, the hills, the, the bits of the old culture that survived. Mm. And she was very important in me, oh, uh, giving up my tenure, giving up my uh, 
Not your health, tenure. Health insurance <laughs> and uh, the uh, saving for retirement. So 1975, you, you went back. Right, we went back. Wow. And uh, we were just uh, in love with it so mm-hmm. much. Uh, well, and she began, her poems, uh, she was a, a good kid poet. Uh, at that time, when we went back, when she was in her mid twenties, yeah, almost like twenty years. Your your junior, correct? She was nineteen. Years nineteen years, yeah. Yeah, and um, as she worked in her own room, and I worked in another room, I just watched her get better and better and better. It was it was wonderful to see. And mm. I fed by the farm, eh? I, I think that uh, our isolation, uh, our concentration on work. Uh, helped to improve her poems enormously. I often think, so did she. Uh, what would have happened otherwise? That she had the time uh, to, to gaze at it, to revise a great deal. Mm. And I watched her get better and better and better, which was thrilling. And also uh, made me want to do better. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were mildly competitive, but uh, it was there. Uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. Yeah. Well, let me invite you to read another poem. There's so many things I want to go back to in what you're talking about, but uh, I wonder if you would read Names of Horses. Sure, I'm happy to. I'm fiddling for it in my book right now. Here it is, Names of Horses. And this does come out of uh, my childhood years visiting my grandparents at the farm. All winter your brute shoulders strained against collars, Padding and steer-hide over the ash hames, To haul sledges of cordwood For drying through spring and summer, For the Glenwood stove next winter, And for the simmering range. In April you pulled cartloads of manure To spread on the fields, Dark manure of Holsteins, And knobs of your own clustered with oats. All summer you mowed the grass In meadow and hayfield, the mowing machine clocketing beside you while the sun walked high in the morning. And after noon's heat, you pulled a clawed rake through the same acres, gathering stacks, and dragged the wagon from stack to stack, and the built hay rack back, uphill to the chaffy barn. Three loads of hay a day, hanging. Three loads of hay a day, hanging wide from the hay rack. Sundays you trotted the two miles to church with the light load of a leather quarter-top buggy and grazed in the sound of hymns. Generation on generation, your neck rubbed the window sill of the stall, smoothing the wood as the sea smooths glass. When you were old and lame, when your shoulders hurt bending to graze, one October, the man who fed you and kept you and harnessed you every morning, led you through corn stubble to sandy ground above Eagle Pond, and dug a hole beside you where you stood shuddering in your skin, and laid the shotgun's muzzle in the boneless hollow behind your ear, and fired the slug into your brain, and felled you into your grave, shoveling sand to cover you, setting gold or not upright above you, Whether next summer a dent in the ground made your monuments. For a hundred and fifty years, in the pasture of dead horses, roots of pine trees pushed through the pale curves of your ribs, yellow blossoms flourished above you in autumn, 
and in winter frost heaved your bones in the ground, old toilers, soil makers. Oh, Roger, Mackerel, Riley, Ned, Nellie, Chester, Lady Ghost. The last line of that poem is heartbreaking. And it, it's, it's just the list. It's, it's the list. Lists list can be wonderful in poetry. Whitman loves lists, and as many of my favorite poets uh, excel at lists. Why? I don't know. Mm. But uh, this one, actually, as I was working on the poem for over a year or so, at one point I, I had a little rhymed portion at the end of each stanza, and the last uh, line was, Riley the most. And earlier... In order to rhyme with most, I made up Lady Ghost. Oh, it's such a beautiful name. And Don't it tell me it's made up. <laughs> turns out to be the, absolutely the right way to end the poem mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when it changed and became all free verse. Yeah. yeah. Ah. But it's, I mean, that, that line is so heartbreaking because of what's come before it, of course. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Amazing. They're Grazing in the sound of hymns. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Stunning. Thank you. Um. So, so getting the the feeling a bit of the of the the farm here, um, I, I want to ask you to go on to the night of the day. And before I ask you to to read that, um, or some of it, whatever you are willing to offer us, this is a this is a long poem that is a fourth of of the book, The Old Life, uh, that is just a, a wonderful story uh, about um, some of your neighbors. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm wondering, do, do any of your neighbors read your poetry? Not very many. Yeah. No, there's a prose book that I wrote about um, my summers on the farm when I was a kid called uh, String Too Short to be Saved. And if my neighbors speak of books, it's pretty much that one. I will meet somebody I haven't met before, and he'll say, oh, you're the fellow wrote the book. And I, <laughs> yeah. I know which book they're talking about. You know. You're but, just uh, that poet that yeah, lives yeah. on that. And uh, mostly over there. I have uh, you know, written about the farm in the past. But uh, this story uh, is one that uh, was uh, when Jane and I were living there. She's in the poem. And uh, took me a long time to get to writing it. But it's a, it's a narrative story. Yeah. And I'm happy to read it. Yeah. Great. Well, you know, I, I, you know, in this, um, in this day and age, you know, the, the first thing you hear in the workshops is always, cut. You know, uh, take this out. You don't need this. This is just scaffolding. Everything's economized. Um, how do we get to the long poem? What warrants the long poem? A good story, or uh, some sort of uh, tracking that uh, makes it important to continue and to get to the end of it. Uh, this is one of the longer poems I've written, but there is one book-length poem, which is which contains some narrative, but it, it's not held together by, by narrative. And uh, that one, from the beginning to the end, was about 27 years. <laughs> it's called uh, uh, the one day. But at any rate, this is another day, a very different one, and it's called the night of the day. What uh, the day is will become obvious. And you can ignore my uh, my sticky notes and just okay, read right, on through. Right. Cool October, Monday night. I waited for kickoff at nine o'clock as the long day declined. 
when I turned older than my dark-haired father ever got to be. I leaned back, sleepy in my chair, as the Dallas Cowboys kicker approached the tee and was startled to hear a pickup in the drive. At the door, I found Larry Lamorte, agitated and pointing backward down dark Route 4. Gone, he shouted. Gone! There's something in the road. Heifers, bulls. Looking past him into the moonless night, I saw bulky farms that moved heavily on blacktop, as incongruous as battleships on Eagle Pond. Larry's old Dotson shuddered as he apologized. Sorry not to help. I promised Earlene I'd watch that show about apes. I stared through the dark at the creatures. Heifers? Bulls were unlikely. Through the dark, I watched their ruminant motion, black on black, and thought, uh, if a late-night Plymouth hurried over the hill at 65, somebody could die. Inside, I woke Jane to telephone Peg Smith, our constable who usually rounded up black labs, not Holsteins, and to wake our neighbors down street. After I walked back out, approaching cow shapes that hovered over McAdam, I heard Dave Perkins's door slam and watched father and son walk toward me, black, moving through blackness, and heard Dave hallow through the silence, whose heifers do they be? When David and I were boys, and I visited for the summer up from Connecticut. All the old Route 4 farmers kept a few cattle, raised one or two heifers, and sitting on stools alongside runty Holsteins, squeezed out two cans of bluish milk a day. The milk truck stopped at dawn. In return for the old men's haying, milking morning and night, hauling ice from the pond for summer's milk, and raising field corn. H.P. Hood and company mailed them a monthly check, sometimes as much as $20. The summer I was 13, my grandfather and I spent an August day chasing two wild heifers that escaped from a pasture. But tonight's skinny creatures were tame. Whose could they be? Nobody raised cattle nowadays in this valley of old pastures becoming woodlots house lots sometimes, and sometimes video outlets. With only a few fields flat enough for a tractor to work in, now, to break even, you needed to milk 50 registered pedigreed Holsteins and borrow from fleet to buy a milking machine, a stainless steel cooling tank, a Macintosh computer, and a front loader to spread manure on 300 hayable acres. And still you worked 16 hours or you labored all week at the mill to support your addiction to Holsteins. David and Paul and I cowboyed the seven heifers from Route 4 to the field beside our barn where their ancestors had chomped for a hundred years. Whose could they be? I called my cousin Sherman Buzzle, select man, deer hunter, carpenter, pig raiser, who knew every voter in Wilmot by name, and woke him where he lived two block, and woke him where he lived two miles away, in a white cape with many sheds that our common great grandfather built, and asked him if anybody nearby still kept a herd of cattle. Sherman was curious. 
Right after I hung up, Jane bundled herself into three sweaters and came outside to help. Sherm's 4x4 GMC manoeuvred into the dark manoeuvred into the driveway, and he swaggered to join us. Forty years old, hitching green work pants under his belly, burly or maybe fat but strong, and peered through darkness at loose heifers munching asters by the barn. Then Peg Smith's new Ford braked at the margin of the road with her flashes, with her flashers flashing and she heaved uphill to join us. Just behind, her deputy, Ned Buttry, parked his Plymouth van, sparking another cadence, and approached, grinning with one tooth. Ned looked back at Route Four's shoulder, blinking on and off, said, looks like quite some party, and laughed, joining our circle. We gossiped together, mostly ignoring the heifers that mostly ignored us, back, as they moseyed to browse. Now I saw the cattle clearly enough, young, not yet bulked out, so bony, old-style Holsteins. Somebody driving down Route 4 saw car lights pulsing. He braked, backed up, parked, turned his flashers on, and joined us. Now we were eight, but David said goodnight. He needed to load his truck at five, and Paul went to high school. David reminded us who had left school at 14. The quiet father and son walked home together, I noticed now, not thinking of anybody watching. They were holding hands. Sherman listed neighbors who kept cows. Bill Marchick across the pond, who raised sheep for the wool that his wife Sally spun and wove, kept a few decorator Holsteins, seven heifers? We agreed it couldn't be built. Jane mentioned Willie the Lord. When she said his name, everyone laughed. Sherman spoke common knowledge. Willie likes to fence the front of his pasture. He never gets around to fence the back. But Willie's disheveled hill farm straggled on ragged mountains five miles north, too far for Willie's heifers to wander. Peg had a thought. Maybe perhaps Ed Eck keeps cows? Knowingly, Sherman nodded. Penelope, he said, but Penny died on Ed last year, November, old age. Ned remarked that Sherm remembered names of cows even though they never voted, or hardly ever. We laughed and stomped our feet. The stranger said maybe these cows were wild, like the bears that came back to our woods after a hundred years. I told him I liked the notion of feral cows returning to this New Hampshire valley of dis disappearances. When I went back inside to telephone Bill Marchick, Marchick just to do something, and Bill answered, well, let me see. Mother and daughter were there at eight o'clock. Want me go see? I'll take a look. I told him no. I doubted even his two cattle could multiply into seven so fast. Do you have an idea whose they might be? Try Willie, Bill said. Walking back, I heard the sound of stories and a laugh that rose abruptly from the circle, from pale faces over sweaters and down jackets beside the barn, a laugh that ended a story with gaiety's flare, 
like a wooden match striking gold inside a stove. I said, they're not Bill's. Bill said, try Willie. Nobody had an idea. Nobody fretted. Somebody started to tell the one about the bull butting the vet that about the bull butting the vet that brought syringes. Well, I fretted. What do I do with them? Sherm offered. Feed them poems. They tell you got extra. They tell you keep old bales of poems stacked in the hayloft. We kept a roof over our tie-up, but no cows stirred under shingle since my grandfather's heart gave out 30 years ago. Did I want to wear overalls? For a moment, I milked the cattle of daydream, morning and night, but no. I knew how I wanted to spend my days. I farmed in the summers of boyhood, and that was enough of farming. But whose heifers were they? I jogged inside to ring up Willie Delord, asleep five miles away or not. When I told him who I was and said I was sorry to wake him and mentioned the heifers, Willie's doleful voice ascended to interrupt me. Oh, darn. Oh, darn. I'll be down. Darn, darn. As soon as I find my pants. With Willie on his way, Jane and I alone could have kept the heifers in place. But nobody wanted this impromptu party to end. We felt giddy, the way children do when something extraordinary keeps them up past bedtime and rules are broken. All rules are broken, as they are in paradise. Sherm told about plowing one February morning at three o'clock as the snowstorm finished. I was scraping Jones's driveway up near Willie's and saw the electric light in Willie's tie-up. He found Willie sound asleep, snoring, his head rising and falling on a Holstein's ribcage. I remembered my grandfather's tales of Pete Butts, the Willie Delord of another day. Peter Butts planted corn in August and stacked hay in his barn mixed with snow. Pete's hay turned black, rotting in his rotting loft, and he died in the poorhouse. Peg Jones was telling how Willie's father was a martinet of whitewashed tie-ups and exact routines, while Willie can't sell his milk because his barn would never pass inspection. Sherm told how he and his brother Grant took three days to muck out decades of cowshit, black straw and spider webs from Willie's tie-up after H.P. Hood Company mailed its ultimatum. It took Willie one week to make it as dirty as ever, so Willie can't pay town taxes July and December. He farms to feed his family, growing a garden, churning butter the way his grandmother did, feeding milk to pigs in order to smoke bacon, slaughtering Holsteins to grind for hamburger. And every year in the fall, for taxes, Sherman said it aloud, Willie sells another piece of his daddy's farm. No one spoke. Changing the subject without changing it, Ned Buttry remembered how Peter Butts never cut stove wood one winter. So instead, Pete burned old bed frames that he hauled out from the attic, busted the rocking chairs, spinning wheels, picture frames, and wooden chests, and wooden chests 
that saved dead people's frocks and union suits. He burned broken tables, enough to stock ten antique shops, or enough to buy himself an old furnace. But Pete never thought of attic things as antiques for sale. He used up useless stuff, and the green captain's chair his great-granddaddy dozed in, dozed in, burned hot, real hot, in the rusted Glenwood kitchen range. The last thing he burned that year, Peggy tells us, and all of us know these stories, was his outhouse. Pete pulled it down with the 1924 John Deere Model D that he used for a tractor and sawed it up for the stove, ending with that five-holed ancient plank, which didn't smell too good when it burned, is what they say. Each of us waited to add a story this storytelling night. It was so dark, we never saw each other's faces, except when Sherman lit a camel. We knew each face by its voice's shape. But before we told another, Willie Delord's enormous rusting Buick sang on its dying bearings into the driveway. Sherb took time to mention, dropping his voice, that Willie never changed his motor oil. You know that row of wrecks behind his barn? Then Willie bounced from his car. Then Willie bounced from his car, grinning, cringing with apology, and groaning, God darn it to heck. Victoria drove the car. Stepping out, she followed Willie a pace behind, smiling faintly, to let you know it was Willie's predicament, not hers. Willie was hers. Sorry we took so long, she said. We couldn't find Willie's pants. In Victoria's headlights, we watched Willie, garlanded with rope, creep up on his loitering creatures. He wore pinstriped gabarine trousers, muddy black wingtip shoes, brown suspenders that rounded up over his belly, and a Sears work shirt with many darns. Our circle tightened to watch him as he roped his cattle one by one, tying quick knots around each black and white neck, his bulky body agile and quick, until he hitched his heifers together and straightened up, smiling, puffing, and proud. By now it was midnight, three hours after kickoff. No more traffic, which was good because Willie had to drive his cattle now five miles home, tapping their sluggard backs with a birch sapling. Would Willie repair his fence tonight? No, no. Maybe tomorrow his seven heifers would graze Route 4 again. He waved goodbye, driving his cattle as Victoria rolled the Buick three miles an hour behind him, headlights on bright to forewarn an oncoming car. Now Peggy, Ned, Sherm, and the stranger made goodbyes and headed to their machines one by one. Starters whirred, engines caught, headlights lit, flashers stopped flashing, and cars U-turned to vanish. Jane went inside to bed an electric blanket. Silence and darkness returned, blessed dark silence, interrupted again by Larry Lamont's rusty Datsun crushing the driveway's gravel. Dawn! 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 
who belonged to that boat. Then I had the night to myself. No moon, no stars, no trucks, no heifers, no friends, no stories, and no sound. Only dark fields and darker road, black on black, and I was alive, older than my dark-haired father ever got to be, sleepy, not wanting to sleep, happy, startled by happiness. Thank you. Thank you. I'm speaking with poet Donald Hall. That was the night of the day. So let me play a little bit of devil's advocate with that because certainly I have this question um, more with more of your poems as, as well. I'm asking the poet, why the poem? What, why, why the poem as container for that story? What do you want to do with that story that you can do in a poem that you couldn't do in an essay? Or I know, actually, with, with that uh, poem, I... Uh, I had a version which I started writing in prose as a story. And I've, I've written and published short stories. And one or two began with a poetic version and a prose version. I can't remember the other one, but I remember that it came out as prose. This one came out as poetry. Mm. Now, a lot of it is uh, not very poetic. Uh, it's anecdotal. It can be funny story of friendship and so on. Um, a story, rural people ten, tend to tell stories about the past, about somebody dead who burned his outhouse one, one year <laughs> and so on. Um, and I was, the night happened very much as I wrote it. And it was the anniversary of my father's death many, many years later. He died quite young. Uh, and the story haunted me. I wrote it both ways until finally I just I felt that uh, writing it in lines, the main distinction between poetry and prose, gave me a way to control the rhythm and even the rhythm of the speech. And I, I talk a lot in uh, old country grammar, and Larry Lamont calls, calls me as if he were calling the uh, beginning of the day, right. dawn, dawn. I didn't say it quite so uh, Fully, but that's the way Don is pronounced in New Hampshire or has uh -huh. been. Uh, I found that uh, uh, there were many points at which I could learn, I could use the line for pauses that I wanted or for kinds of groupings of images, uh, which I couldn't do in prose. Uh -huh. And I knew that not all the lines were, for lack of another word, poetic, but uh, enough of the lines seemed to me to add and enforce the telling of the story mm -hmm. that I decided to do it in lines. Mm. Well, it's, it's wonderful. And, and in, in this and, and other of, uh, others of your work, um, this, this revealing of people in their own voice is a wonderful addition. Yes, well. I think I wish I could have done that a little more, mm. but uh, that was certainly one of the uh, pleasures in this one. And lines could, could really... Uh, help to imitate the way people talk. A little break at the end of the line and the kind of movement mm -hmm. uh, which uh, anecdote led to uh, narrative. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I like to uh, uh, get at uh, people if I can. Mm. And, uh, often there's some versions of myself or somebody I'm close to. Mm -hmm. But then I can tell lies <laughs> without using their real names. 
Lies are good. We like lies. We need it yes. for fiction, right? <laughs> well, um, you know, as 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 much as this place has steered your work and and fostered it, I wonder, do you ever feel that you need to leave the farm to gain some perspective or, or fodder? Or is there ever a time when you felt like, okay, for my for my work to move forward or just for myself, I, I need distance? I don't think that really has occurred to me. There are a couple of things I say that, uh, oh, when, I, uh, when Jane and I moved to the farm in 75, I had already written a lot about the farm, and I thought to myself, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be going back to where I've written about, so I'll never write about it again. <laughs> and the first few years I wrote about it over and over again. Uh, and uh, my, my work has um, changed a lot since. It it comes up from time to time, the farm and my memories of the past. But for the most part, uh, my work uh, has uh, gone through uh, measures that uh, have nothing to do with the farm at all. Mm-hmm. And that some of them come out of old recollections. It's also true that I travel a great deal. Uh, particularly, I've traveled uh, to do poetry readings. But I've traveled all over the United States and uh, also to... Uh, uh, Sweden and uh, Ireland and so on, so that I do break up my steadiness at the farm uh-huh. by necessity. And I think that this is probably helpful. Yeah. Normally I live a day that, now that I'm a widower, I live a day that uh, repeats itself very much. And I love that uh, sort of solitude and uh, predictability, but I need to break it up. Uh-huh. And largely the poetry reading also occasional just trips for fun uh, are probably very necessary. Mm-hmm. Well, will there be anyone there after you well, my children? I worry about that a lot. Uh, my children don't know how much I love it, and they have had their own pleasures there. And I believe that they will keep it on for a while. But I realize that, uh, well, are there any of my grandchildren who would want to stay there, who would want to live in the country in relative solitude? Would they marry someone who uh, felt the same way about it? At some point, obviously, somebody's going to have to clear it out and sell it. And maybe uh, 10 years from now, maybe 40 years from now. But it worries me. It bothers me. Mm. But mm. what can you do? You, it seems to be inevitable mm. that one dies. And... Uh, that things go on after one. Mm. Well, let me take you. Let me take you back uh, to a much briefer poem um, that relates to what we're talking about. Um, you had a vision for this uh, much earlier, and that's the "My Son, My Executioner." Oh yes, poem. this was a poem written in uh, California, and it was. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm looking for the page number here. Uh, it was uh, 1955 uh, when my uh, son was born in Stanford, uh, California. Hmm. The only year I've ever lived in uh, California. And he's about to turn uh, uh, 55, which uh, dates the poem. <laughs> itself. Uh, shortly after he was born, I worked on a, on a poem, uh, not, not with uh, so many... Uh, revisions as I do now. Well, I actually changed it since I printed it uh, first time. 
It's called My Son, My Executioner. My son, my executioner, I take you in my arms, quiet and small and just a stir, and whom my body warms. Sweet death, small son, our instrument of immortality, your cries and hungers document our bodily decay. We, twenty-five and twenty-two, who seemed to live forever, observe enduring life in you and start to die together. Hmm. Well, um, I haven't asked you uh, directly yet um, anything about uh, your wife, the late poet Jane Kenyon. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking... Um, I'm paraphrasing, but I know that you've said that your your marriage to Jane Kenyon was the best thing in your life. Yep. yep. Um, and and I also know that you you've said you haven't written any children's books since since her passing. Was was she something of a muse for you, or is that just too cliche to be accurate? I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, the uh, the life together was so much the life of poetry. That's. Uh, I made a living, I, having quit tenure, uh, by writing uh, children's books and prose books and short stories and articles for magazines and all sorts of things. But every day, the first hour or two, uh, early in the morning, was spent writing poetry. And uh, Jane sort of woke up more slowly. She walked the dog, and then she went up to her study. We were sort of opposite ends of the house to work. But I know she was up there working. She knew I was downstairs working. In the summer, Jane wrote fewer poems because she gardened so much. Mm. She would write poetry until the dew went off the ground. <laughs> but, uh, and she <laughs> wrote some of the heart. best things. That, and we knew we had this major ambition together. We shared it. Uh, we didn't often talk about it in those terms. I read aloud to her every day, but uh, much of the day we were separate, and I've called it a, a double solitude, uh, which was fine and a lot better than a single solitude. Mm -hmm. But uh, we would uh, show each other our poems, but not quickly. We worked on them a long time before they would, before we would show them to each other, and then we helped each other a lot. Uh, sometimes it would be one word that we suggested, sometimes a grammatic formulation, or sometimes that the poem had gone one stanza too long. I mean, that happens. Uh, but every few months we would get together and show each other, oh, three or four poems we'd been working on in the meantime. And, oh, I would uh, say, uh, I left some stuff on your chair. Or she'd say, there's some stuff on your desk. And then <laughs> one of us would go to read, and the other would sort of run away. <laughs> and then we'd come back together. And Jane always said that I would uh, look at her smiling and nodding and saying, these are going to be good. And she would say, going to be, huh? <laughs> and uh, uh, there, there were moments when uh, we got sort of formal with each other. Uh, oh, thank you, yes. And so on, which... which meant that we were disappointed, uh, ah. but uh, you know, often we, we liked very much what each other wrote, and sometimes uh, there were typical things that the other didn't like, so we got not to uh, uh, 
write them and not to show them to each other. I had a way of, of repeating, which I really think I got from Yeats in particular. She had a way of extending a uh, verb form, has been doing instead of done, you know, and so on, every time she brought to me. But, uh, oh, I remember when she brought me the first draft of a wonderful and well-known poem of hers called uh, Otherwise, when, where she wrote about doing this and that, but one day uh, it, it would be otherwise. Uh, and in the last, uh, or uh, in the last stanza she wrote, but one day I know it may be otherwise about our life together. Mm. And I got her to change, maybe to will be otherwise. Mm, mm. And uh, it wasn't, oh, uh, I think at that time I was recovering from a, uh, a difficult cancer where I wasn't probably going to survive very long. But it was Jane who, within a year or so, uh, developed leukemia and died. Uh, it took 15 months uh, over its course. But the remar Quick. A remarkable thing, one another remarkable thing about Jane, yeah. said you've seen pictures of her probably taken not long before her death. And she's just gorgeous. And the girl that I married, when I was 43 and she was 24, was wonderful and uh, jolly and funny and uh, so on. But she was not beautiful. And <laughs> as her poetry got better, she began to permit herself to be beautiful. And there was something in her that was dragging her down when she was younger. And she still was a victim of periodic depression. But, uh, oh, she did things to her hair. She got lenses instead of her thick uh, glasses, and she just blossomed in poetry and in beauty. Isn't at the that same interesting? Time. Yeah, that's a very yeah. interesting theory. Yeah, wow, huh? Mm. Well, a wonderful life, and thank you for sharing it. Thank you for coming here and asking me. Um, I know you worked uh, with the Paris Review, and you have interviewed some iconic figures yourself, T.S. Eliot, uh, Ezra Pound, Marianne Moore. Yep. Is there anything yep. else I should be asking you? How did I do? Well, I, uh, <laughs> I, I did know uh, Marianne Moore and uh, Dylan Thomas as well, mm. which is when I was quite young, of course. Now I'm quite old, and it, it seems amazing that uh, I knew these permanent folks. Uh, and I, I, I observed their lives. I didn't know anyone well, uh, but uh, they meant something to me in what they had gone through and put themselves to, to become as good as they were. But I learned more uh, about poetry from somebody else, older, and that was Henry Moore, the sculptor. I did various things. I did a New, York, New Yorker profile of him, which became a book, and hung around him a whole lot. But exposure to somebody who was a great artist in another form than poetry meant a great deal to me. And mm -hmm. every time he said anything about excellence in sculpture, I immediately applied it to poetry. Uh -huh. I enjoyed him, no end. He's a wonderful man. But uh, I really uh, feel that I learned so much. Well, I learned habits of work. Uh, he worked uh, even more than I did at the time I knew him and was dedicated to, to work and still could have um, 
wonderful relationship with his wife and so on. Uh, but I, I, he would say of sculpture, I never think of a surface except as the extension of a volume. I think he may have gotten that from Rodin, actually. Huh. But uh, I would immediately apply it to poetry. And I would sit with him while he was working. Uh, he was talking while his fingers were shaping a wax and so on. And I would pick up uh, attitudes and metaphors that uh, seemed to me to go to the heart of writing and uh, writing poetry in particular. Hmm. Well, I wonder if you'd take us out on the poem, This Poem. Okay. This is the poem called uh, This Poem. This poem is why I lie down at night to sleep. It is why I defecate, read, and eat sandwiches. It is why I get up in the morning. It is why I breathe. You think, and I know because you told me, that poems exist to, to say things as you telephone and I write letters, as if this poem practiced communication. One time this poem compared itself to new machinery, and another time to a Holstein's cud. Eight times five times eight counts 320 syllables. When you require it, this poem consoles, the way a mountain comforts by staying as it was, despite earthquakes, presidents, divorces, and frosts. Granite continues. This poem informs the hurt ear wary of noises and sings to the weeping eye. When the agony ablates itself, one may appreciate arbitrary art. This poem is here. Could it be someplace else? Every question is the wrong question. The only answer saunters down the page in its broken lines, strutting and primping. It styles itself not for the small mirror of its own regard, not even for yours. To fix appearances, to model numbers, to name charity, the greatest of these. All night this poem knocks at the closed door of sleep. Let me in. Suppose all poems contain this poem, dreaming one knowledge shaped by the measure of the body's word. Thank you. Thank you. Donald Hall. Can't wait to hear you this evening. Thank you. I began. Good. Thanks. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.